Welcome to Inside Seaweed, the podcast looking deep into the seaweed industry through the stories of pioneers, entrepreneurs and innovators. Today's episode was recorded in person at Seagriculture Conference in Trondheim, Norway, just a couple of months ago. My guest is Dan Hillman, co-founder of Kaylee, which I mistakenly kept referring to as Kali with my pretend British accent. Dan later explained that both pronunciations are okay, although it's entirely possible that it was just trying to make me feel better. Dan is a great addition to the seaweed space and brings an important perspective that comes from the world of finance. He's an experienced impact investor, most recently focusing on the global water scarcity issue and leading venture capital investments within food and and AgTech companies. The interview was originally streamed live on LinkedIn, and today you get to listen to that interview again in full. To give you a bit of context, when Dan and I sat down to have this chat, the conference had only just started. It was day one, just a few hours in. We briefly stepped out of the buzz of the conference and sat into a quiet meeting room, and this is what followed. Enjoy. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us here. I'm Fed Gobbi and I will be your host for the next half an hour or so. This is the very first Inside Seaweed live interview, which means we essentially don't know what we're doing. Anything could go wrong at any second. And joining me here in person for this extraordinary experiment is Daniel Hillman, co-founder of Kali Group. Hi, Dan. How do you feel about this? Hi, Fed. Thanks for having me. And um I'm honored to be your first uh, experimental partner <laughs> here, and I hope it uh, I hope it goes well. But yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you, and it doesn't stop here with the experiments because this is off script. Christina from uh, Ocean Rainforest just before this handed me a pack of uh, I can't even remember which species of seaweed it is. Terrible, terrible. We'll, we'll rectify this, but she said it should be a good one to try. So I figured, let's do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, this is going to do a huge amount of crackling on the microphone. I'll leave you the honors to take the first bite. But obviously, you, you can't see this. Oh, he's gone for it. He's gone for it already. Apparently, it's uh, fermented. Mm. So um, it's quite good. It's quite nice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A bit acidic. Yeah. This is, this is good already. And it has the salty. It's like, um, yeah. you know, a much health, healthier uh, crisp if you like the salty and vinegary. Mm. She said it could. It, it was going to be um, love or hate. I see that. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a bit in the Marmite. UK where. Yeah, exactly. Where oh, I like to call it Marmite. Yeah. Where you? Rosie, <laughs> we're only a few hours into this conference. What brings you to uh, here in Trondheim? What are your expectations for the next couple of days? Yeah. Um, well, it's my first time at the Sea Agriculture Conference, and really my first industry conference as a industry participant, I guess you could say. So in many cases, these are people here that I've heard about, seen, looked at their websites admiringly or otherwise. And it's a chance to make those connections and establish ourselves hopefully as another participant and hopefully a player in this emergent industry. It's also a chance to learn. The combination of both approaches from academia and industry, we and I, more specifically, can certainly benefit from understanding how other companies are doing it and also what's the sort of state of art on research in topics that are relevant to the business. And it's a chance to expand my own knowledge 
you know, two years ago, I was just started becoming, you know, getting the, the so-called seaweed bug that many of us seem to uh, have experienced. And it's been a journey of just broadening, deepening my knowledge. And I think that that is an ongoing process. And you see people here who have dedicated their lives to understanding the complex world of, of algae. And, you know, when we talk about 12,000 different species, and then we talk about cultivating it, and you talk about what happens in harvesting, bringing it on land, stabilizing, integrating it into products. I mean, it's a kind of a rabbit hole or a bottomless pit of, of information that you can, and learning that you can do. So just continuing that process and hopefully establishing myself as but one of the many people making small contributions. It's definitely a steep learning curve for any new entrance, isn't it? It is, it is, but it, it's also, it's, you know, because it's so fascinating and because the potential is so great with respect to environmental outcomes, social outcomes, outcomes on land, healthier people, healthier planet, it makes it easy in a sense or, or certainly worthwhile. And I think that's a guiding and inspiring force for, for us. Uh, you know, the industry does need new people. So we, we need to make it as, as easy as possible for people to come in, be able to go through this steep learning curve and be able to contribute. Was there anything for you that you found was missing in your sort of learning journey? I would have uh, benefited from being, uh, you know, a phychologist with a PhD yeah, um, coming yeah. into this. But, um, you know, I think it's, I'm, I'm definitely catching up with respect to understanding some of the biology, the biochemistry, the some of the, the, the more complex scientific aspects of it. But I think where I am coming from is from a background of, of finance and entrepreneurialism. And clearly one of the things that's missing from the seaweed industry, mm -hmm. or at least the cultivated seaweed industry in Europe is access to the kinds of investment numbers that are needed to scale up. And so we're hoping to kind of bridge the gap between understanding the language of finance and what investors, potential investors would need to come into this space. Because right now, I think there's a lot of people waiting on the sidelines thinking oh, this is an interesting space, but they're seeing relatively few business models that meet the criteria, whether it's just in terms of the amount of money they need to invest in a single go or some of the de-risked pathways to profitability. So those are obviously challenges that we're working on as well and hoping to kind of bridge what I see as somewhat disconnected worlds of the seaweed industry which has its roots in academia and, you know, the financial industry, which is obviously looking for return on capital above all else, but, you know, increasingly is interested in helping to achieve those environmental social objectives. But at the end of the day, it has to make money or yeah, it's not going to even, it's going to be a non-starter. Where do you think might be the, the sort of the gap between these two groups? Is it a case of, you know, the seaweed industry knowing more about the finance side of things? Is it the investment area knowing more about the industry or is it, is it something else? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, it's really just a matter of creating a scalable model. And that starts really with markets. You need to find the market for a product, you know, a scaled up amount of seaweed cultivation that you can do profitably. And then of course, as was mentioned several times in the sessions earlier today, we need to bring down the cost of production significantly to compete with Asian cultivated, with wild harvest, with, you know, to be able to integrate against the other things that you're trying to replace in existing supply chains like 
you know, petrochemicals or other things like, uh, you know, soybean production in, in feed. So which tend to be quite cheap, quite cheap, yeah, quite cheap. It seems to be a big theme of today already. It's been yeah. A couple and of so times. I think there's a number of chicken and egg questions that sort of plague the industry. You know, is it the markets? Is it you scale up production first, but you can't solve one without the other. And then you can't solve any of those if you don't have the money. But I think I come away from this already and encouraged that there's lots of talented and passionate people that are pressing in all different directions. And I think when you're talking about an industry that's fundamentally at, I don't want to say the mercy, but that is beholden to cycles of nature, you have to calibrate your patience levels with natural cycles. And it's not, this is ne never going to be a sort of like, you know, SaaS technology industry that's going to, you know, have hockey stick graphs of companies that are growing hundreds and hundreds of percent year on year. That doesn't mean that you can't achieve a sustainable growth. And once you do it, it can't be a durable kind of growth and create a lot of really stable and profitable companies. You have to sort of deal with nature in both sense and, you know, the limitations that that provides, but also and the limitation that we should put on ourselves to, to keep yeah, the industry it's, sustainable. It's definitely difficult as an entrepreneur, you know, you're wired to sort of want to go as fast as possible to break down all of the walls, you know, and just in scale up and, but you do have to kind of remind yourself as an entrepreneur in this space that you're ultimately working with forces that are far more powerful than you or your company or anything. You're working with nature and you need to be respectful of that. And I think that those that achieve the best progress and results will ultimately be ones that can work in concert with nature rather than try to force against it, which I think, you know, is sort of the model that has led to a lot of the significant challenges that we face as society today. You may have addressed one uh, some of these already, but I wanted to ask you, which is something I ask many guests in the process so far, you know, we talked about your sort of learning curve and getting into the industry. What has been personally, your biggest problem or frustration that you found, some of which you, you may have already mentioned. And I want to give it a, a, maybe a little a bit, a bit of a different spin. I'd like to know specifically whether there is any problem or, so, or frustration that is so important or, or so significant in terms of what you want to achieve that you'd be willing, in inverted commas, to throw money at it, to make it go away. Sure. Um... And to buy a bit of time, what the, where I'm coming from this is a lot of entrepreneurs or potentially people wanting to get into the industry, looking for a way to contribute, will want to know, okay, what are the problems that I can solve? Mm -hmm. And what are the problems that are worth solving? Because you, you said earlier as well, it's not just providing solutions, but it's always about the market as well and, and finding solutions that are indeed worth solving. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I think probably the, the one that would solve a lot of other problems along the chain would be just coming up with a more effective way to make people aware of seaweed, mm -hmm. you know, the broad consumer base and aware of the benefits and more excited and actually interested in spending their money and making choices, uh, you know, as consumers that would validate higher prices paid for yeah. resulting seaweed products or choosing seaweed based products over, over others. And so a kind of a pull factor from the consumer rather than probably what we see today, which is more the industry kind of pushing on consumers in hopes that, you know, something really sticks with them or something really resonates. So if you could get a more of a pull factor, and this really probably stems from a collaborative approach and sort of industry bodies and better lobbying and better 
marketing and media attention is making consumers more aware of the benefits that they can gain from choosing seaweed products over others. And then I think that would solve a lot of issues all right up the chain to production. Okay. And even before that, you know, seeding and everything. I mean, it, it, it just solves a lot of problems if you have a big market demand. with attractive, you know, demand characteristics that you can feed into. Before we dive a bit deeper into what Kali's role uh, is going to be in the, into the uh, industry, I wanted to ask you, what have you decided that you're not going to do? And the reason I'm asking this is, I'd be interested to understand what, in going into this new company, this new reality that you're trying to build, that you're building, what are the things that you said, you know what, we're not going to do these things. We're going to rely on partners to make the, the model work on, mm. on these things. Yeah, well, I can tell you one thing that we are not going to do as a company is go into the farming and sinking for carbon credits <laughs> okay. area. And in general, the sort of carbon sequestration potential of seaweed, we believe has been dramatically overhyped. And it's not really the ecosystem service that we are most uh, excited about. I'd say it's at, actually more towards the bottom. But in terms of where we are going to rely on partners. Obviously, right now in Scotland, it's a very nascent industry. And so in some sense, in order to achieve a certain kind of scale ambitions that we have, you have to take on a lot of the different functions yourself initially. But clearly, we don't have the ability to seed, you know, a seed stock. We don't have a hatchery, a nursery. So that is something that we're relying on Hortamara for as well. And you know, clearly, and when we talk about product development, we have some experts on seaweed, but we also need to partner with scientific organizations on land, research organizations on land that can help us develop our products and create a more enticing commercial proposition that will in turn help us scale. But really, we've taken on the ambition that we do want to be largely vertically integrated into at least one vertical. So it wasn't a strategic decision to say, you know, we're just going to focus on this one thing. You know, I think we'd like to. And I think that if you look at how sort of other industries develop, I think at first you see people that they become vertically integrated, but then as you get more established players along the supply chain, people start to focus in on specific areas where yeah. they add the most value. And I think that's a, a hallmark of a more mature industry supply chain. And I do think that will happen over time, but you can't I mean, I think there's an issue today where certain downstream companies, product development companies like biorefiners or certain product, you know, seaweed-based product manufacturers were operate under the assumption that if they create this product in this market, that the biomass will flow to them. Like if you build it, they will come. And I think that that is proving to be a difficult proposition for some of these businesses as they are looking to exit kind of pilot stage, you know, early venture backed and into, you know, wider product commercialization as they're starting to look around and saying, oh, wait, where's the seaweed? You know, we thought we'd be market enablers and that hasn't been forthcoming. So at this very sort of nascent nebulous stage, we don't want to rely on too many less established or even embryonic elements of partners in the supply chain. But we do realize that, you know, we need to have a very collaborative approach and we're certainly open to working with anybody. And if anybody has better solutions or things that can be delivered, we are open. 
open to you know collaboration. We're more than open to sharing anything that we are doing as well. That's great to hear, and I, I do think that's the right approach. You know, you, you see in the industry a lot of companies, and rightly or wrongly, trying to do everything. I think it was mentioned mm. this morning in the keynote speech, trying to do everything. Yeah. Uh, but really, there's an argument to say, well, actually, like you said, a more mature industry will see players focusing on what they really are good at. Yeah. Do you think that's just, it's been forced on by the fact that there's nothing there, or is it a, a choice? Yeah, absolutely. And I think also when you're talking about some of the farmers who have started out and kind of operate at what I would call a kind of a cottage industry mm -hmm. scale, there's almost a need to vertically integrate into, you know, kind of a specialized product, whether that's a food product or a cosmetics product or something like that, because you just don't have enough quantity of biomass to be able to sell that on to into, you know, another industry. So clearly for us, the decision to vertically integrate is all about enabling us to justify scaling up production. So we have the ambition of being the largest producer of farm seaweed in the UK and possibly beyond. But in order to justify the investment in the infrastructure and in the farms, in the logistics that you need to show that you have a pathway and a market to ultimately, you know, sell those products profitably. So I think we kind of see a mix of developing our own products and vertically integrate over a number of years and also continuing to sell in bulk to other kind of uh, people, participants further down the value chain so that we're, you know, generating revenues that can help us support also further product development. No, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that. I wanted to ask you about creole fishing. Yeah. So I understand that Cali will establish a network of commercial, I think I read commercial agreements yeah. with local creole fishermen, which is always really interesting and it sort of, it links in with a lot of the things we, we just said. Could you maybe tell us a bit about how you envisage this relationship to be? Yeah, clearly. So we, you know, Kaylee set out from its outset to be, you know, to create positive outcomes for shareholders, for the environment, and for the communities in which you operate in equal measure. You know, that's just sort of charter foundational principle that we've established for ourselves. And clearly on the west coast of Scotland, Getting buy-in from the communities in where farms will be located is crucial. It's crucial to the licensing process. It's crucial to ongoing social license. There's a continuing sort of, I think, resentment or at least distrust of the other big aquaculture industry in the West Coast of Scotland, which is finfish farming, mm -hmm. where some of the benefits haven't, economic benefits, social benefits haven't flowed to the communities. And I think there's some concerns about environmental consequences as well. So clearly we have to kind of have adapt a grassroots approach with the way we interact with communities to you know, build sort of support for what we're doing to show them that it is a sustainable or at least, you know, very low impact way of producing things that are of value to society and that they can, you know, benefit from the growing of the industry. So basically we have five farms currently that we have under sort of lease option agreement mm -hmm. with uh, the Crown Estate Scotland, one of which is actively in the licensing process right now. And for each of those farms and for future farms we want to do, they'll be operated by partner farmers, which are typically going to be drawn from the creel fishing community in Scotland. And if you don't know what a, a creel is, it's basically like a, a trap for bottom feeders like lobsters, langoustines, crab, and it's a, you know, a less environmentally impactful way of harvesting those creatures than say, you know, bottom trawling or dredging 
So the seasons with the high season for catching lobsters and langoustines and things in Scotland is in the summer. And obviously the kelps that we're growing are winter crops. So there's sort of complementary seasonality to that where we can, similar to, you know, what like Atlantic Sea Farms in Maine is doing with uh, lobster men, you're showing them this isn't just an opportunity to save the planet or anything like that. It, it, this is an opportunity to earn more money and to have a more, you know, diversify and have a more climate resilient activity that you're engaging in that can earn you and your family money and sustain your, your livelihood, which in many cases is something that's, you know, generational um, and very much ingrained in the identity of the people who, who do that. Yeah. Was that behind your choice to go for this type of model? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some practical considerations as well, where if you are owning and operating every single farm, that creates quite a large cost structure at an early stage. But it also, you know, it's definitely really mainly about incorporating the communities and incorporating community benefit into our business model and, you know, creating community funds to distribute benefits, employment opportunities, not just as a contracted part-time employee, but also as someone who is kind of a has an ownership mentality over the farm because they're, you know, ultimately responsible for the operations and they're incentivized by producing, harvesting more biomass. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So in practical terms, the farmer stroke fisherman will own the farm? So for the per for legal title, yeah. we will own, Kaylee will own the farm. Kaylee will provide all of the infrastructure, all the equipment, provide the training along with the SAMS Seaweed Academy mm -hmm. and using our R&D training farm as an ongoing sort of site of best practice development and interaction between the farmers to share what's working, what isn't. And we will also, you know, we, we will hold the license for the purposes of the Crown Estate and we will provide a kind of a guaranteed offtake, provide a, a wage, consumables. Right. And the, the farmer partner brings a boat. They bring the knowledge of the local sea lock probably better than anyone, weather windows, when you can go out, when you can't, when you can harvest, when a storm's coming in, et cetera. You know, they know their patch of sea better than anybody else. So you do well to tap into that local knowledge. And so we think that that is a way of sort of de-risking and making it more attractive for people that might be interested in seaweed farming, but think, you know, the capital cost is too high or, you know, mm -hmm. where, how am I going to sell the biomass? You know, do I have an offtake? I think it, it, you know, it de-risks it from their perspective. So. That was another consideration. And you'll be able to train people as well on the seaweed side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there we're going to be leaning on Sam's and their great seaweed academy additionally, but we also have one farm that's solely dedicated to research and development. It will be kind of an ongoing site to work both with customers to work on techniques that yield better end products, farming techniques that bring the cost down, seeding techniques, when you harvest can you do multiple harvests, et cetera, for certain products? And then also ongoing research and development opportunities for academia, for farming partners, and for ourselves. Fantastic. You mentioned working with customers, which leads me on to my next question, which is who do you see as your future customers? The big question, who, who's going to buy your seaweed? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> and I'd love to have the totally crystallized answer for you. And I do I realize it's, it's early days. No, but you know, we are actively, as we speak, developing a seaweed biostimulant product and we will be undergoing a sort of a research and development, uh, glasshouse testing, field trials, et cetera, your regulatory roadmap for to more widely commercialize that product. 
So we see our customers really as agronomists, growers, amateur gardeners. I mean, there's, you know, seaweed biostimulants are widely used in kind of horticulture and home gardener mm -hmm. markets, but we really see a opportunity to tap into some of the movements towards more regenerative agriculture practices of which seaweed biosimilants can be a part of and ultimately reducing synthetic or conventional fertilizer usage, which ends up in the seas. So I think there's a really attractive story here about growing kelp and remediating the nutrients that end up in the seas from excess agricultural runoff bringing those nutrients back to the land in addition to the biostimulant properties of seaweed, which stimulate the natural plant growth mechanisms like nutrient uptake efficiency, like abiotic stress, others, improving the rhizosphere. So the way that the roots interact with the soil, improving the soil health, the soil's ability to sequester, suck up and sequester carbon. So I think there's a lot of interesting developments on land that are going to lead to significant growth of biostimulant category in general. And seaweed biostimulants, I think, make up the largest mm. component of the global biostimulants market and ex expected to have the fastest growth. And you're already seeing a number of sort of big agrochem businesses start to acquire seaweed companies, invest in seaweed companies, enter distribution agreements with seaweed companies. So clearly it's got the attention of big ag as well. Is that a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you can reduce the amount of uh, synthetic fertilizer, I mean, if you think about how nitrogen is made with natural gas and how phosphorus is mined, yep. carbon intensity of that, and then how it depletes soil quality over time, if you just keep applying more and more and more, and then the downstream effects in watercourses and the sea, if you can create a more regenerative agricultural system, and if seaweed biosimulants can play some small role in that, then yeah, I see that as absolutely a good thing. I mean, getting the big ag to adapt to better practices, I think, is probably a more likely way of achieving progress than we're going to tear everything down and start from start from the beginning. Yeah, especially if you're looking at having the biggest possible yeah, impact. Yeah, exactly. And certainly when you just talk about, you know, potential market sizes, then that becomes more attractive because, you know, we're talking about absolutely enormous markets potentially yeah, yeah. Um, they're not there yet today by any stretch but the potential i guess is tantalizing i want to stay a bit longer on the your new biostimulant trial setup yeah i don't know how much you can share about this you know let me know if there's anything that obviously i understand if it's a secret yeah, or yeah. In, in any way can you share anything about what you're hoping to learn you know in, in particular what hypothesis or, or otherwise unknowns you're hoping to validate or clarify yeah Clearly, we want to see, you know, if you look at the EU biosimilant regulations, one of the things that you need to be under certain amounts for is heavy metal limits. Okay. So obviously we're trying to see what our extractions yield in terms of you know, what the heavy metal contents are. Biosimilants, we think we're going to be well under, but you never really know. One of the things that's plagued the biostimulant industry, I guess you could call it, in the past and even today is the perception which is probably borne out in reality in most cases from farmers that the product is inconsistent from year to year. And a lot of that stems from the fact that almost all biostimulants are produced from wild harvest seaweed. And so you have a huge variability in terms of what mother nature provides and when they're harvesting and what the conditions are 
and the, you know it's effectively limited. You saw the graph from earlier today that showed that wild harvest has stayed flat yeah, since about yeah. the 1950s. I don't see that changing anytime soon. So increasingly, people are going to be looking for a more scalable solution, but also like farm seaweed. But I think also farm seaweed offers the opportunity to exert more control and thus reduce the variability year on year of or you know cycle on cycle of, of the conditions. But clearly that feeds into the extraction process as well. So really what we're trying to do is develop a data baseline that we can continue to measure against and test and test and test. And really there's no sort of like golden key silver bullet to understanding why biostimulants work in certain areas versus others. So really what you need to do is just test relentlessly and then you know you start to glean more data show more results and then you can start to better make the case for why your product works under what conditions what crops and when and how much to apply and those are all highly complex considerations that were really just at the outset of, of understanding what we have with our product. Do you think that will help you in, in understanding your customers better, understanding yeah. who can benefit more from yeah, your Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't make sense to sell your product to a potato farmer when really you should be, you know, you get the best results when you use them on viticulture, like wild yeah. grapes or something like that, or, you know, trying to sell them in Scotland when you should be selling them in Argentina. That's a total hypothetical, but absolutely yeah. getting an understanding of what your product is and what it does and what it doesn't do, more importantly, I think will help to guide you towards, you know, who the best customers are and best regulatory environments, et cetera. Is there any area of this research or this experimental work that you're doing where you feel a bit more confident and maybe areas where you think there's more risk? I just see it as potentially, I mean, we don't feel hugely confident in our scientific understanding of what happens on land. You know, we're just getting up to speed on growing seaweed. So clearly we need to expand our knowledge there and work with partners who are experts on, you know, crop science and what happens on in land-based agriculture. But I think we are definitely confident in the just the basics of the business model that allow you to scale up production of farmed seaweed for Kaylee into the you know thousands of tons and do so profitably, you know, provided that you have a an effective product that you can commercialize. There's another element that I'm sort of interested in when we talk about fertilizers and you know biostimulants, because they're a good way to take extra nutrients in areas where in waters where yeah. there is potentially too much of it yeah. or where potentially even runoff from agriculture is taking nutrients into coastal areas and then transferring them back and bringing them back into soils which are as we know more and more depleted yes so why am i talking about this because you're exploring this this world this this sort of area of the industry mm -hmm. and potential are you looking at nutrient credits as a way to create an extra income stream. Is that a thing? Is that something that people like yourself could tap into to make it even more, give it one more, even one more reason? Yeah, we think absolutely. First of all, we see the sort of most readily quantifiable, measurable, and easy to kind of prove scientifically and develop a, you know, kind of the, the MRV to support credits from ecosystem services for nutrient remediation and clearly 
you know, I think that the, well, for instance, I'll, I'll use an example that's relevant to you. You work for Wessex Water in your day mm-hmm. job. So my father-in-law is a farmer and I filled out a form for him where Wessex Water will pay him as a farmer to plant cover crops and reduce the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen that goes into uh, the runoffs, which ultimately becomes the responsibility of the water companies to clean up. And the technology is quite expensive. They don't have the ability to do it really cost effectively, but the responsibility is being placed on the water company. So already you're seeing catchment level nutrient compensation schemes. You're seeing in councils kind of cap and trade nutrient credit schemes at local levels. You're seeing things in England like nutrient neutrality. Clearly the direction of travel is, and then obviously you look across into mainland Europe, especially with the Netherlands, and it's become this huge political controversy over nitrogen. You look at the nitrogen levels in the North Sea, it's one of the most you know nitrogen polluted places on earth. Clearly this is an issue. And I think governments are increasingly moving in to create ways of trying to address it. And so I do see nutrient credits coming in the future. Of course, there's a lot of just like the you know carbon voluntary carbon markets have um, you know evolved over a long period of time, and there's still you know significant questions about that. I think nutrient credits will take some time, but clearly it's there because there's a the outcomes are quite advantageous both to seaweed farmers to land-based farmers. You know, if you're a seaweed farmer creating a biosimilant and you can generate a nutrient credit, and you can share that with that nutrient credit with the farmer who's buying your product because you do the part downstream on land, they do the part upstream and, you know, reducing their conventional fertilizer use. That's it's a win-win, isn't a, it? a win-win. It achieves the objectives of having nutrient credit in the first place, and it helps you sell your product and it helps the farmer not be sort of seen as the, you know, the bad guy in all of this when really, um, I don't really think that that's a, you know, accurate characterization. It's just that the system is so kind of rigged to, and it can't really function else, any way else of just applying more and more and more fertilizer onto crops, because that's the only way you can achieve the same yields year over year in depleted soil conditions. So starting to change that mindset, I think will, will brigade. And, and so Kaylee is, is actively working to push for and to we're taking the initiative really to start to develop the you know working with partners like sams to do some of the science of and understand you know where potential areas of leakage because nitrogen can leak and become nitrous oxide which is a potent greenhouse gas that's not the outcome you want how do you prevent those potential leakage areas I and mean, how can you fully quantify that nitrogen loop if you will from crops on land through waterways to the sea and then back. So that's something we're, we're really working on. And that's part of, you know, our other kind of plank of business, which is focused on marine natural capital projects. Uh, so conservation, restoration, et cetera, in the marine environment, which, you know, natural capital has become another kind of trendy topic in finance and in certain policy circles, but um, the marine environment, like, you know, you know the blue economy, lag significantly behind. So we're trying to uh, start to change that. And clearly we see credits as uh, a way to drive private finance into some of these underinvested areas. But of course, we don't want to engage in anything less than the most sort of beyond reproach, high quality, verifiable credits. You know, we don't want to sell fake carbon credits. We, so clearly there's a lot of science 
a lot of frameworks, a lot of methodologies that need to be put in place in support of that. But yeah, it's happening. And it needs to be, it's happening, but it needs to be done properly, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Who do you think is or should drive this forward? forward? You mentioned government. So within a UK context, I can speak to, I mean, the, the UK government came up out with their uh, nature markets framework, which included nutrients, and they tasked the British Standards Institute to begin to look at ways of kind of quantifying that building methodologies and, you know, kind of creating the conditions for robust nature markets, including credits and nutrients is right up there with carbon and biodiversity. There's challenges in each one of those, but it's up there and you will see probably, I think BSI is saying the end of 2024, where you'll see kind of a initial methodology for kind of a nutrient credit. Right. In the UK. Marketplace in the UK. Watch that space then. Watch that Fantastic. space. Look, Dan, it's almost time to wrap this up and uh, get back to the conference for the second session of the day. Do you have anything you want to add that we haven't brought up? Uh, anything that you'd like to point people to? I just want to say how exciting I find the, you know, just the level of enthusiasm, the level of passion in this, you know, maybe that's just a function of we're just a small, scrappy little industry <laughs> trying to make it in the world. But I think there's generally so much positive thinking, people that are working hard in a very honest sort of way. You know, seaweed farming is at the end of the day, <laughs> at least for now, a very labor intensive proposition. It's highly ingrained in identities of the sea. And I just think it's a very beautiful sort of little ecosystem to be playing in and uh, trying to support. So I'm encouraged by the spirit of the people that I'm meeting here. And I think that we have the right ingredients in terms of the people, the passion, and the right motivations to really make something happen here in the next couple of years. So Definitely. a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to speak with you. And I look forward to the rest of the conference and hopefully making Kaylee more of a uh, household name when we come here next year. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. I do, uh, you know, absolutely want to echo your comments. It is a very nice uh, environment to be working in, very nice vibe talking to people around, uh, you know, even this morning down in the and the lobby absolutely of course you know thank you so much to those who have dialed in for this live interview you are very welcome to come back that was my conversation with dan hillman i hope you found it useful i just want to leave you with a quick invite to check out the inside seaweed newsletter if you'd like a monthly bite of seaweed related actionable insights in the form of a really short email it's a two-minute read where i try to condense what i've learned and most importantly how those lessons could be applied by you super easy to sign up and even easier to cancel if it's not your thing if you'd like to give it a try head over to insightseaweed.com now it really is time to close i wish you all the best in your seaweed endeavor and until next time take care